Welcome to your 14th BSC Vision, the podcast where we learn about the joys of working in mental health over a cold brew. My name is Aaron Rajamani, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Jesse Richardson. Hello, Jesse. Welcome to my home. Thank you for making your way down from feral Gippsland. How are you? Yes, uh, Aaron, I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, I, I think thank you for acknowledging me making the effort to come here. You're, um, you're very committed to this endeavor. Yes, I really appreciate yes. it. <laughs> um, I've decided, I was just telling um, Aaron and our, our guests before, I've decided I'm going to declare war on Punt Road, um, especially when the footy's on, because just getting getting here from from there was quite the nightmare for me. Um, but, <laughs> okay. but we're well, here. We're here. Yeah. It sounds like it's really left a real mark on you. Yeah, oh, it <laughs> has. It's drained. Yeah. Yeah. This is just like no yeah. color in it. It's yeah. just like a, um, it's been an ordeal. I'm a shadow of my former self. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good, good way to start a podcast. Good. Yeah, yeah, no, good. <laughs> all, all uphill from here. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, well, yeah, exciting uh, for you to be here and exciting for us to be talking about a topic today. Um, and we have an exciting guest, uh, Dr. Robin Martin. Thank you so much for being here. Say hello. Hi. Yeah. Thanks <laughs> for having me. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Um, yeah. So, um, Robin. Uh, is the Dean of Social Work. Or? Thank, thank you for the promotion, but it's Associate Dean. Associate Dean. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> You're the Dean in my heart. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> um, social Work at RMIT. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, great, it's a real uh, privilege to have you on and um, speaking to us. I'm sure we'll learn a lot. Um, yeah, so how about we start with you just telling us a bit about, I guess, your qualifications, your role at RMIT, um, and I guess what your interests are. Like, what are you about when you're yeah, doing your job? Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's yeah. nice to be here. Yeah. Um, so I started out with a Bachelor of Social Work and um, I didn't go straight from school. I was kind of in my mid-20s um, when I studied social work. And to be quite honest, when I walked across the graduation stage and, you know, shook the hand of the man with the funny hat, I yeah. kind of thought, <laughs> I don't know that I've done the right thing. Right. Um, <laughs> but 30 years later, I think I must have, okay, what sure. I'd say. Yeah. Um, and I practised for many years. Um, in It's really interesting. I was thinking about it coming here. I started in women's homelessness and I finished my practice in women's homelessness and All did right. a whole lot of things in between. Um, but it's always kind of been in homelessness, family violence, trauma, those sort of areas. Um, and I undertook a master's, a research master's at some point then. Um, and it was more about, I kind of wanted to make sense of my practice, but from a more theoretical and academic perspective rather than, you know, the practice perspective. Mm. And then sort of fell into a job at university, um, at Curtin University in Western Australia. And uh, that was interesting in itself. But I sort of was a bit ambivalent and thought, oh, well, look, I'll apply and see what happens. And then I got the job. And, you know, when they told me, they said, are you a bit excited? And I was like, yeah, sure, I am. (laughs) I was like, okay, that's interesting. Um, And I think that's sort of something about my social work career is that I've never really planned it deeply other Mm. than what aligns with my values and what is, I think, important about how I am in the world. Um, And then I undertook a PhD and 
that was I did that part time and I worked full time, um, which was pretty exhausting. That would that would be quite the undertaking. It was, it was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I was at Curtin University at the time, and I was the director of field education, so it kind of meant so you know looking after placements. It meant that I knew when there were the peak times and the slow times in field ed, you know, mm. as there are. Um, and my, but interestingly enough, my PhD I did at RMIT. So and now I've landed there. Yeah, right. Yeah. You come back. Yeah. <laughs> and I looked at um, what creates sustainable pathways out of homelessness for women. So it very much reflected my practice mm. as well. Mm. And if I think now about, um, oh, and I've been at RMIT as the Associate Dean for Social Work and Human Services for just over a year, and that's a big team. Um, we've got three social work programs, a youth work program, and a social science psychology program. Um, and so in the human services, I guess, is what mm. I'd say. Um my work in the last 10 years has been a lot about lived experience. So I spent quite a lot of time at Curtin working with a consumer academic, um, exploring how we could bring the voices of lived experience into the classroom so that students yeah. would hear from different people and different types of expertise. Mm. And it's a, ultimately it's a challenge to kind of professional knowledge as well, which was part of the project. Right. So did you feel like at the time there was a, like a distinct lack of that in the classroom? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, right. yeah. And I was in a school with occupational therapy as well. So we started by bringing what we called the lived experience educators into social work. And the social work students were generally very open to it um, until we said to them, we said to one group, the lived experience educators are going to mark your work. Mm. And that changed the dynamic a bit. Right. Yeah. So it was like, that's okay. You can kind of come in and tell us about your story and that's great. Mm. But hang on a minute. Hang on yeah. a minute. And then the OT students, they were even less open to the idea of um, someone who wasn't an academic marking their work, which is very telling because it sort of says, well, where do we think expertise lies? Is it only from people like us who've got qualifications mm. and practice experience or is it that somebody who's lived this could actually be very qualified to mark my work? Wow, yeah. that is such an interesting question. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. You can see how there, yeah, there would be like controversy around that for sure. And yeah, I'm so excited to talk more about this. But before we get to that, there's a very important formality that we have to go through. Um, Jesse, would you like to lead us through the ceremony? Yes, I, I would. Uh, <laughs> I'd very much like that. Um, today I put my Dan Murphy's card to good use. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 it came in the mail really oh, quickly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked about this last the, week. For yeah. those who, who caught on the last last uh, episode, it took me uh, 12 or 13 episodes, I can't remember, of this podcast before I actually got a Dan Murphy's card, and um, <laughs> I was really excited I got to use it. Um, and I was, I, was, I was standing at Dan Murphy's, and I was like, I, I need to pick a beer that really captures you and I, Aaron. Us two, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, oh, and, and our guest too, Robin, you too. Um, I thought, we're, we're a fancy, fancy group of people. <laughs> we <are>. And <laughs> we need... We need a beer that really captures just how fancy we are. And so you got a goat-themed beer? Um, Wait, Aaron, Aaron, um, oh, don't, right. don't oh, interrupt. Oh, please, please don't I'm interrupt. Sorry. There's, a reason, there's a reason you don't do this part of the podcast. <laughs> oh, um, 
And so I got us the Mountain Goat Fancy Pants Beer. Oh, good. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's coming together in my yes, mind. There good. You go. yep. Yes, there you go. Yes. So that's the beer I went with today. I'm really looking forward to trying it. Robin um, has noted that she doesn't drink drink beer. I don't. Um, which, uh, so she's got uh, some the, of the, Aaron's mm, tap water. The finest, the yes. finest Brunswick tap water that money can buy. Well, we'll, we'll let we'll let Robin be the judge of that. So um, Aaron and I will will drink yeah. the fancy pants beer over the course of this podcast. Uh, Robin will drink the water and and. We're going to learn all about uh, the quality of Brunswick water yes. um, in today's episode. So, how about we how about we crack these bad boys? I don't know about you, Robin. That's probably one of my favourite sounds. Yeah, look, I'm I'm not a beer drinker, but I don't mind it. I'll listen to the cracking of beers all day. I just want to drink a lot. I just sit at home, just like cracking crack. a moment, crack, crack. <laughs> And a sip of the water, it's not bad at all. Mm. Oh, excellent. Oh, yeah. good. That's, that's a good sign. Mm. Oh, this is interesting. That is an interesting. That was unexpected. Yeah. yeah. Almost doesn't even taste like beer. Yeah. Anyway, I, li- well, I, li- I like this. It's, uh, it says on the can, canned but not tamed. Uh, <laughs> and I, I like that. <laughs> what are you, like a mountain goat spokesman? What's going on? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> Corporate interests have finally infiltrated via supervision. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, so onto onto the podcast. Um, yeah. So I want to like step back a bit and tell tell us maybe a bit about like your experience, kind of working in the university. Like, what kind of things have you done? Um, what's your experience kind of working with students and things like sure, that? Sure, yeah. sure. Um, well, look, I've worked in university setting for quite a long time, so it's mm. 18 years yeah, actually, right. um, and probably done everything from, you know, lecturing and tutoring um, through to the type of role I have now. Um, as I said, I worked in field education, which was just fantastic. I really, really enjoyed mm. seeing what happens on a placement for students. Mm. It's, you know, such an incredible time. Um, and my teaching has been pretty reflective of my practice experience. So a lot in uh, mental health and critical mental health um, and in trauma, violence and abuse. And when I first started tutoring, I was actually teaching in areas like social policy, you know, the whole kind of spectrum, social policy through to interpersonal skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm currently, uh, I've picked up a tutorial in um a course called Casework Counselling and Advocacy. So it's pretty clear what it is. Mm, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Which I'm really enjoying, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned um, you did you taught in mental health and critical mental health. Could you, like, define those sure. terms for us? So yeah, think. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I started teaching critical mental health, mm-hmm. um, and I had practised a lot in community mental health, mostly in non-government, um, but worked very closely with clinical systems. And I would say that I learnt the most about mental health and psychiatry from the people that I supported, you know, in those Mm. days we call them clients, I'd probably say service users today. Mm. And I was reflecting on that with students on Thursday. I said, look, what I learnt about psychiatric drugs, I learnt from the people I worked with. I really learnt it then. Mm. I saw what it meant to be on those drugs Mm. and how people kind of navigated their, you know, direct effects or side effects and those sort of things. And I guess in terms of critical mental health, it was my colleagues and friends in the lived experience movement that really introduced me to that. And I've Mm. always sort of found myself sitting in the critical social work perspective. 
But I think what those colleagues taught me was about power and how it operates in the mental health system um, and how much it can be very repressive for service users. Mm. Um, And I also have really close connections with families or carers as well and come to understand how they experience mental health systems at times as well. And just um, on, on that, what were some of, I guess, the, the main things that you, you took away from, you know, talking with those um, service users um, around, uh, I guess you mentioned some of the, the, the power mm. um, hierarchies. Can you give an example of, of what you noticed? Yeah, I think a classic example would be when people present with real experiences and concerns mm. and they're they're straight away framed by the professional as, but that's part of your illness. Yeah. So, you know, mm. um, I mean, I'll use a public example. Jackie Dillon is a, a consumer rights activist from the UK and she was um, experienced childhood trauma and when she was hospitalised, she raised that and the psychiatrist's response, and this is very much in the public domain, said, oh, but lots of people come here and tell us that. Now, part of Jackie's experience was it was organised childhood sexual abuse. So it's like, well, there would be lots of people from that area Mm. potentially presenting Mm. at hospital. So I guess that's what I learned was that, you know, um, listening deeply to people about what they're presenting with. And I really learned that in my community mental health practice was that I remember someone I worked with and he did have what would be clinically known as delusions. You know, there were things that happened in his world that... I certainly didn't experience, but really what I learned from him was what impact did it have on him and what mm. meaning did he make of it? Mm. And ultimately it was that he felt very, very unsafe with himself and he felt really unsafe in the world. And that was the point of engagement with him. Mm. And for me, a kind of critical mental health perspective kind of leans into people's meanings and their realities rather than enforces a reality. Mm. And that then starts to work with power. It it tries to level it out a bit. Yeah, I think in when I started working in like a clinical setting, it definitely like when you're seeing lots and lots of people um, frequently throughout the day, like people start to blur together and become like their symptoms. It's yeah. like, mm-hmm. oh, here's another person with this yeah. kind of category of symptom. Uh, so this is the thing that I need to do. And then if they don't, if they start to like move outside of the bounds of what I imagine that is, it's like almost like a resistance. And I'm like, Stop doing that. That's not what you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after like, yeah, after it's, yeah, it's something that just happened gradually over time without me even like really being yeah. aware of it. Something I'd like consciously kind of fight against to see people as people and not the presentation. They yeah. Come in. And one thing I always think about is I don't think there's a clinician in the world who goes to work and thinks I'm going to make life difficult for consumers or families today. And that mm. kind of gets lost when we have these critical conversations because professionals can get quite defensive and say, but I really care and I really want to do the best I can. And I think what you're kind of drawing out there, Aaron, is this that it's almost the pressure on clinicians and the number of people you have to see and the duty of care and the risk management, it drives people to behave in yeah. certain ways. And that's why I always make that point about no one went to work today and went, yeah, I'm really going to be mean to somebody. It just doesn't yeah. work that way. I know that when you were, um, when you were just mentioning that, Robin, um, that example, I was I immediately thought of you know my role within in community mental health and how um, sometimes you can feel quite overburdened by how many um, you know um, people you have to provide a service to and and um, and yeah that that really jumped out to me that it, it 
you, you go in with that that those really good intentions of I'm I'm gonna do the best that I can today, and, and sometimes you do kind of um, have to take a step back, as Aaron mentioned, and, and reflect a bit on well, what you know, am I maybe um, casting this person into into a bit of mm. a box when I should be looking at them more as 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 an individual mm. uh, than I currently am. Yeah. So yeah, I thought it'd be like so. With that in mind, I thought it'd be really great to talk about, I guess, um, at like the kind of student level where they're just kind of maybe like on the cusp of going into work. Um, what kinds of things, I guess, should they be prepared for or aware of in terms of preparing like a good mindset in terms of thinking about this kind of stuff? Um, especially because you've you know worked with feel like people doing placement. Yeah. Obviously, you see like that you know students experiencing this stuff for the first time what do you what are there some like experiences you can tell us about well how they go about it um I think the first thing is to find your supports and I think you know be a supervision whether it's with beer or without mm. supervision <laughs> is the way to go and of course that can be your kind of formal supervision and that doesn't always meet our needs is the other thing I'd say you know like often if it does occur in organizations it can be a bit sort of tick and flick, you know, okay, we've done that, let's move on. So I think you can find it through your peers. And I think in a way it's about finding your people and holding really close to your values because I think, certainly for me in practice, it was never the people I worked with where I started to get close to burnout. It was Mm. always the organisations. It was always, you know, when you're butting up against a system who maybe isn't as open to accept a referral about the person or who holds Mm. these views about the person that are old views, they've changed, they're different. That's the point where I always used to get incredibly frustrated and think, oh, no, you know. And so uh, that's why I think don't don't be a line ranger. Like find your people and Mm. stay really connected to them. And if you have to, spend the money for supervision is the other thing I would say. Um, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Definitely invest in yourself would mm. be my suggestion. Yeah, it's not really something like in terms of like paying for supervision. Like I think I've I've heard the message. You know, expect supervision from your organization. But yeah, like I think yeah, it's hard to like in my mind to quantify like the value in spending that kind of money on mm. supervision. But you're saying like it's actually like going to be super helpful in the long term. It's a tax deduction. Mm. I would say that too as well. <laughs> so, you know, it yeah. balances out. Yeah, sure. Aaron, if you just want to flip me a 50 after this. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with Appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's cheap. 50. Yeah, it's yeah, really cheap. Yeah. For a clinical psychologist. <laughs> a newly clinical psychologist. Yeah, That's thank, right. you. thank you for clarifying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trouble in this podcast for like giving people titles yeah. that they don't, you're not the first person i've no. accidentally given a higher title than they actually have i was yeah. like i'm sorry it's okay i just think so much of you <laughs> uh. yeah um yeah okay cool um and so like in t- so supervision is one um what are some maybe like um mindsets that perhaps you see students getting into that you're like, that's something to cut off at the past. Yeah. So that's very common that maybe isn't helpful. I think for graduates often, and I think it happens for students on placement too, but there's this sense that they think they have to know and they have mm-hmm. to be able to do at the 
level or the rate of the other workers. And I would actually say, give yourself permission to be a beginner and say, actually, I haven't learned that yet. I haven't been inducted into that yet. Could you show me how that is done? And I think the reason people don't do that is because then they think, oh, I'll get this reputation of being the newbie and not very helpful. Mm. And I don't know about you too, but most people when they get into a job have to hit the ground and run. And I think to slow that down a little bit and just be a bit assertive and say, yeah, really happy to take on a reasonable size workload and caseload and all of those sorts of things, but I've just started. Mm. So where are the supports for me as well? Um I think is really important. And I think the other thing, particularly in mental health, I would say is go with a beginner's mind. Go to kind of mm. lean into what it is people have to tell you about how they understand their problems or their issues or their concerns. Mm. Um, and the final thing, I think, is to say to someone, I don't know, but I'll find out. Mm-hmm. And if I think about all my years as a social worker, I've probably only ever had two people say to me, well, that's not good enough. You should know. <laughs> and everyone else has kind of said, oh, okay, can I count on you? Will you come back to me with the answer? And it's like, absolutely. Yeah, right. So it's okay not to know, I think, would be the other thing I would say. So take it easy. Take it slowly. Assert yourself. It's okay not to know. <laughs> yeah. If anything, like in, in my mind when I first started, I, I, I feel like I – I leaned into the fact that I was new. It's like it's like people are much more like I feel like maybe a bit more understanding or like uh, willing to help go a bit of extra if they know that you haven't been doing this for very long or you're new at what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I mean, it's only so far you can push that. So like I pushed it as far as like I was like yeah, it's probably a bit. I've, <laughs> I've probably been here too long yeah. to say that I'm new. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? But like it has its limits. It has its limits. I like I like how Aaron's story there said that the people he has worked with in that example, um, you know, have been really understanding because uh, about a year or so into my role, he was new in our role so that reflects on me being understanding so thanks Aaron yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. you were very helpful when I came into Kim's thank you appreciate yes. that appreciate your induction <laughs> oh, that'll be another 50 but I think on top of that Robin uh, one thing you mentioned earlier which I which I really really liked hearing was when you were talking about within your work working according to what you value mm. and and I think that's a big thing getting getting into the work that you do really f- um, having a bit of a think about what is it that, that really motivates me and guides me and, and what do I value and how can I work within that framework because I just mm. I just reckon you'd get, you'd get so much more out of what you're doing um, if if that's the mindset you're going in with then how yeah. do I make um, what I'm doing, uh, you know, happy, happy for me. It's like, yeah, and make it matter. Yeah, and and I think organisations test that. That's mm, the other thing. Mm. And um, so that's where supervision and your peers become really important when you can have those open conversations about this is what I value, and it gets really tested when I do this work. Mm. You know, like involuntary treatment in mental health. It is at times necessary. So how do we reconcile that with our values? Because most of us came into this work to make a difference and, you know, Mm. contribute to improving people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about, so coming back to what we we were talking about earlier about lived experience in the teaching, Mm. I'm trying to like imagine, I guess, what the resistance would be to... Um, that being like an intrinsic part of like the marking process and all that kind of stuff. I'm just like like cause I'm, I'm trying to put myself back in this place of a student. Like, what would why why like why would that irk me? And like, I suppose like is it that um, 
that it's like the the like they see the value of the experience as like kind of like a subjective thing that you can kind of integrate into your general knowledge but it's not actually objective reality and so it's actually not valuable in the hard and fast of what is and what isn't correct practice and stuff like that? I think there's two things. I think one is it's ideas about sort of hierarchies of knowledge. So there's some knowledge that's seen as more important than other types. So I think what happened for those students, they privileged professional knowledge and theoretical knowledge and practice knowledge over lived experience knowledge. So that's what I mean by the hierarchies. Mm, Okay. And that's why for me, in some ways, I'm really glad they spoke up because it's like, great, let's have a conversation about how you value knowledge. And Mm. and how did you come to that position is the other thing. You know, like, Mm. did you come from a family where the only kind of real and true knowledge came from professional knowledge or book learning? So let's let's consider Mm. that. I think the other thing too is something um, Stella Young, the late you know disability activist, talked about was this idea of inspiration porn. And so this idea that and you know you go and you hear a lived experience story, and yeah. then the audience says, "Oh, that's awesome! I'm so inspired." But in fact, they do nothing. Mm. They change nothing. They never look at their values. They never think about how they practice with people. Yeah. And so. I think the students, the, the small group of students were saying, oh, look, I don't mind hearing your story, but don't come near my work. That's mm. that's not what I'm expecting here. You can just inspire me. Which is, it's, it's interesting <laughs> because that, that um, you know, lived experience in, uh, you know, their, their tertiary studies is, is essentially preparing them for exactly what they're going to experience the moment that, that people leave university. You you go into the, the field and you actually start practicing and you're like, okay, well, this is... This is wildly different to what I was <laughs> what I was expecting. What what um, like you know this uh, what what has been taught to me at, at university and um, and yeah, so it's, it's and quite that's, interesting. That's mm. the value of lived experience educators yeah. in the classroom, because if the students and most do, I've got to say, and all of those students I talked about did shift. I think there was mm. a really small number who ultimately hung on to their kind of values and said, "No, no, they can't assess me." But most, through conversation and dialogue, were able to do it. But the th- that's what lived experience education does: is it sort of really opens the students up. What also starts to happen is, of course, there are students with their own lived experiences, whether it's of mental health, mental distress, trauma, violence, whatever it might be. And so then we create a kind of safer place because, you know, as a social worker, it's not those people over there. It's actually us. All of us have had, not all of us, but a large number of us have had life experiences that shape us. Mm. They unsettle us. They did in some ways determine how we see the world um so that's what it does and so when students get into practice as either students or graduates it's kind of like oh yeah i've, I've been in this place before i yeah. can hear some hard things from a service user that's okay i've been here mm. yeah 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 like it makes me think about like the times when like i have like had like a like a like a light bulb moment when i've been like working with someone they've told me something about let's say like the effect of a medication or like or something like that and like i i would never have thought about that like in that way like we've never have thought about oh that would be a reason why you wouldn't want to take an antidepressant Mm. and there's nothing that i've ever read or understood about it and it's like oh yeah that that makes sense yeah Mm. but but it's like well um i'm trying to think of an example i guess like um 
I guess like something like the um, like you you understand that maybe antidepressant can make someone like feels a bit sedated, but then you're like, okay, well, you know, you're balancing being a bit sedated with, you know, being able to feel better and do things, but it's so much more than that. It's like their sense of their capacity just to be who they were before mm. and they're functioning. And it's, it's not just like a zero sum game of balancing yeah. a plus mm. and minus. It's much more complex than that. And it's just like something you like, how do you convey that in a classroom without somebody actually telling you the experience? Yeah. It's just, yeah. 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 Because in that example, you know, that person might be a parent and it means they can't get up in the morning and, and mm. walk their kids to school or, you know, th- the mm. things that people might just sort of take for granted as part of everyday life are really significant. Because yeah. that then also symbolises, oh, I'm a parent. You know, I have a valued role here. I'm not just someone with a diagnosis of depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sorry, were you saying? No, no. I was, I was, I was not <laughs> going to say anything. Oh, good. <laughs> I, was, I was listening to that. Help, very helpful. And, Thank you. Um, and and uh, really enjoying your example there, Aaron, of um, yeah. of kind of how that that lived experience and, and talking to people of lived experience has helped you to um, understand and appreciate things within the work that you do a lot more. Yeah. Um, I think you can, yeah, you learn everything you, you think you need to learn in, in uni and then um, you can throw it all out. <laughs> throw it all um, out. Everything. Not everything, obviously not. But, um, you know, you, it, it's completely overridden by what you, what you learn from the, the people that you have in front of you. And uh, it's like, I feel like you, you see the knowledge that you learn from a completely different angle. Yeah. And suddenly everything you've learned ha- takes on a different meaning and because it's in a different context. I, yeah. I used to teach a final year student uh, subject and I, I'd say to the students on the first day, okay, so now you're going to unlearn everything you've just learned for the last three years. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> because I actually wanted them to think really differently about mm. what they thought they knew. And I, it was the the unit was violence abuse and trauma and so I said I just want to pair it right back because ultimately it's about who you are in the world that's what matters yeah yes we can go and talk about therapeutic approaches and interventions and but really it starts with you um so some of them would get a bit cross with me thinking they spent three (laughs) years learning things that I said you don't really need to know but you know yeah yeah that's yeah (laughs) it's actually really funny it's like yeah I mean I, I can see how it would be super jarring for the kind of person who goes all the way to do a bachelor degree and studies so hard to like have all this road knowledge it's not it's not a simple thing finishing a bachelor degree no so you're in that mode and someone tells you hey actually there's a whole different kind of knowledge that doesn't really gel with the yeah. the knowledge that you've been dedicating yourself to understand that i'm sure that's mm. be pretty jarring i'd say so yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah cool um so, so we talked about the kind of things that like maybe um, assumptions or things that maybe things to avoid. What are some, do you have like any like thoughts or experiences about like, here's an example of how a student has understood this really well or like made sense of it? Like what would be like a good way in which they would engage with this new kind of learning? Well, I, I remember when we first started bringing lived experience educators into the classroom, and this is not uncommon, and we researched it and evaluated it because we were trying to understand, well, what's the impact? Because there's not a lot of sort of literature around that. And one student made this comment. So the person who had been um, educating them um, 
disclosed to the class that they heard voices and saw visions and they were unmedicated and they had been like that for sort of 15 years or so. And this student wrote in the evaluation, I was really surprised that they weren't unkempt and dirty and had wild hair. And on one level, the educator was a bit like, you know, that's pretty full-on stereotype. Yeah. But actually there was so much richness in it because it's like, okay, so what do you bring to this space as a student? Like where did those ideas come from, you know? Were you informed by your family, the media? But we always used it as a bit of sort of an analogy of also then for those values to be interrogated to then say, okay, so that, you know, set of assumptions I had about people who hear voices and see things are really not correct. And so what that respondent in the research also then went on to say is this is going to change my practice. This is going to change the way I approach people. Yeah. And I'm actually going to assume that potentially everybody hears voices and sees things because how would I know? Hmm. So it's a really yeah, nice yeah. kind of story. That, of, is, but, that is a good one. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I, th- I think um, in, in those sorts of situations when you're, you're, your uh, perceptions around how things should be are challenged mm. and you, you do have to kind of uh, do a bit of refre- reflecting on that, um, you know, leaning into that and um, having having that, um, you know, the courage to reflect on that within yourself is, is really, I think, quite, quite useful and um, adds to the quality of service you're able to provide mm. moving forward. So. Because I think part of the transformation for the student was letting go of fear. Mm. That's the other thing, is to say, well, actually, how would I ever know, you know, if I can't tell by looking at people, um, Mm. then maybe I don't need to have that fear as well. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, right. Hmm. How are we going with the beers? How are we we feeling about it? Yeah. I'm feeling fancy, Aaron. Are <laughs> uh, so feeling fancy? Yeah, I, I mean, I was feeling fancy before I cracked this, but I'm, I'm feeling even more fancy Really, this now. beer is a reflection yes. of your true character. So. Yes, Fan- fancy. Yes. Good. How's the water? Yeah, the water's ref- getting better. It's yeah. great, yeah. It's oh. very smooth. Water. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, right, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds well, like, I'm looking forward to the full review. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like that's a water that gets better with age. It's got go. that feeling, you know, that breath air, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like a wine, you know. Yeah, when I, when, I, when I turned on the tap, I made sure to, like, get some aeration in oh, it when it came yeah. out. Yeah, I didn't want, yeah. It was a very intentional, thoughtful oh, pour, of pouring yeah, of the of water. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't, like, decant it or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> that would be next level. Next level. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past um, Aaron since he's moved to Brunswick. It's, yes. It's the sort of thing he'd do. I have become a fancy boy now that yes. I've moved from the country to inner city. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. No more VBs for me. Oh, no. No, don't say that. Yeah. I actually, uh, that's blasphemy. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I saw you the other week and you had a VB. <laughs> yeah, complete <And> lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have my fair share of incredibly well-designed um, craft beer cans. Yes. Where I'm sure like half the cost of the beer is just because the can looks so yeah, nice. Fancy. You know. Fancy. Fancy. Mm. fancy, fancy. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> So you um uh also supervise PhD students I do. as well. Yeah. I do. Yeah. What's um what's that like <laughs> doing that? Yeah, just, yeah. just out of curiosity. Yeah. It's look, it's fantastic because you tend to have this long term relationship with somebody, you know, mm. 
longer than you would when you're teaching courses or units. Um, it has its highs and it has its lows. And a PhD journey is quite a lonely journey is the other thing I'd say. You know, Ultimately, mm. it's the student's piece of work with supervisor input, but it is their work. Mm. They are creating new knowledge. And there comes a time when they become the teachers of the supervisors as well. Right. Um, so I have a couple of students who are very close to finishing and submitting and um, they most definitely are teaching me about their subject because they've become the experts in their subject. Mm. Yeah. And I've also got a couple of students who've just started. So I've kind of got, you know, and they're, the, they're almost the peak times, the beginning and the end are the mm. really intense times. Mm-hmm. Um but it, it's a delight to see somebody move through that journey and come out the other side. And it, it is a bit of a birthing process, I have to say. <laughs> it was for me anyway, <laughs> one I still remember. Oh, um, no. Still getting flashed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine years later, that's right. Um, yeah, and it's an incredible achievement as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that it's, it's very much uh, like, yeah, that, that start year yeah drawing on your supervisor a lot more for mm. um for help and support with with things but then it's kind of like a, a bird leaving the nest and then you you come back at the at the end um, yeah i envision that if um yeah if i ever end up doing my phd it would be like yeah as you mentioned like that the start would be a nice peak i'd be all like yeah let's do this and then i'd go through the really disheveled jesse stage where <laughs> my, my hair will grow i'll just I'll stop caring about about anything and then and then I'll come out like a new person at the end. Oh, yes. All new. Yes. <laughs> I, th- I think you've captured it really well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So why, considering how good that sounds, like why, why do people, why, why would, I, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm like, ooh, maybe I want to do a PhD one day. Like, I'm like, oh, so that sounds terrible. Why would yeah. anyone do that? Yes. Like, so like what, what is like. If someone was considering doing a PhD in the future, let's say they're finishing up their bachelor or their masters or whatever, like what, what would like what would be the reason why? Like what would be a good reason why to pursue I that? I think I think particularly in social work, for a lot of us, it's about our practice experience, and we want to answer a question that's probably bugged us most of our practice. I mean, that was it for me. And when I look at the students I supervise, you know, like one student I supervise is looking at early career social worker experiences in health. That was her experience. And there were a lot of unanswered questions. Mm. You know, another's looking at um, reform and culture in mental health, again, based on her experiences. So it's often these questions in our practice that we sort of think, I keep coming back to that. Mm. I just keep coming back. And I, I, I want to understand this in a deeper way. I think for a lot of people too, it's about social justice. They want to try and contribute knowledge um, or new ways of practicing that improve people's lives. I mean, I think in psychology, it's probably a different motivation, but still driven by, I'd like to contribute something new so we can begin to answer a problem or Mm. we can improve Mm. the way we respond to that group of people or that particular issue. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that would be... Um, and an accurate sort of assessment of, of PhDs in psychology as well. Mm. Like how can we um, contribute um, and enhance the overall um, quality of, of care and service that we're providing to um, certain certain populations? Yeah. Mm. So in a practical sense, then what 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 should a person do if they're like considering maybe in the future doing a PhD? What are the practical things that they should be doing in order to kind of get themselves on the right path to actually? physically be able to do that yeah Yeah, look the first thing i'd say is get involved in some research 
you know, um, get to understand, particularly if you if you did honours some time ago or you haven't done honours so you don't have much experience of research, get to understand what it's like. And that might even begin by reading some research papers and different types of research approaches, you know, qualitative, quantitative, big studies, small studies, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, But where you can, put your hand up to join some research projects. I mean, so much of our practice involves research because Mm. we come up against questions or issues or problems and we don't know the answer. So Mm. what do we do? We start looking around, we dig, we ask other people. It's research. Mm. Um, And the other thing I'd say is try to write, write about your work is the other thing. Start getting into that habit of, even if it's for yourself, to keep a kind of reflective journal um, on your practice experiences and the sense you make of it. And if you can move towards publishing, fantastic, you know. Um, The world, of, I guess, of research for PhDs these days is quite a competitive one. So it means that often for people to be able to get into a PhD program, certainly in Victoria, Mm. they need a bit of a track record. So they need to show that they've been involved in a project or they've written with other people, those sorts of things. Yeah, okay, right. And I, I think in social work we don't write about what we do enough you know, and there is opportunity to do that mm. in Australian Social Work as a journal where you can reflect on your practice and put up a problem and, you know, do a bit of theorising around it and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we don't do it enough in social work, that's for sure. We do, we do lots of work, but we don't write about it and share it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's like, I mean, this might be wrong, but it's like the the kind of person who typically starts a social work degree is not also the kind of person who envisions themselves being just like an academic often. you're sitting in a room often yeah i mean it's not yeah. always certainly not always the case but yeah yeah often yeah they kind of tend to be different people and i think that suggests ideas about academics you know that academics are only theoretical mm. and i'd certainly consider myself a practice academic so right. i still think of myself as a practitioner mm. even though i haven't practiced for a while mm. that's my kind of orientation whereas you know, some of my colleagues would be much more theoretical in their approach and yeah. less about practice. Um, but I'm interested in what happens between people, you know. Hmm. Mm. Oh, cool. Um, awesome. So I guess uh, one of the final questions, I guess, is um, the kind of a question we ask a lot of our guests is um, what, how would you, um, what would you say to someone who is maybe considering getting into mental health like what what would be like this is why you should get into it or this is what you should do before you get into it or consider before you think i really think about doing it like what's that kind of initial advice to like either push him in the direction or be like maybe this isn't for you or like i don't know is that <laughs> well i'd say start by being really clear about your motivations and your intentions mm. so do you think mm. that you've got something special to bring to people and you're going to change their lives and if you do really critically think about that would be my <laughs> yeah, right. suggestion yeah. <laughs> okay sure. um do you the second thing i'd say is think about that work with your colleagues and other organizations because you will work in a multidisciplinary or an interprofessional way um what is it you think your discipline is going to contribute Mm. and how will you stand up for what you believe in and what your discipline represents as well Mm. um because i think to work well in mental health you need to be pretty assertive you need to know your stuff. You need to know who you are and you need to know your disciplinary knowledge, mm. what it contributes, um, and then 
how you can hold your own in that interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary setting as well is the other thing I'd say. Yeah. And then I think when it comes to working with people and their families is, you know, who are you in that work and how will you go with the really difficult parts of mental health practice, whether it's involuntary treatment or it's sort of shifting people in some of those directions to try and involve, you know, involuntary treatment but ultimately if you're in a clinical setting it's a statutory role so how Mm. will you balance that Mm. because I don't think you can avoid thinking about the fact that you will bring an element of professional power and privilege to that but you can do that really well you can do that in incredibly humane and respectful ways so I guess my advice is really think it through and talk to other people who work Mm. in mental health people a bit like you people a bit different from you um and, and listen in for the stories of joy and celebration because there are those in mental health practice. I, I think mm. it's the most humbling form or site of practice you can engage in. Um, I think I've had some of my best practice experiences working in mental health, you know? Yeah, right. Mm. That is encouraging. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, what do you think? yeah it's, it's a lot to think about and consider. Like I think I'm like thinking about to, like my like how I thought about when I was a student and yeah, you definitely like, I think, I mean, my, my, my personal, like when I get into social work, you definitely have to like go from, Ooh, I'm, I'm going doing this course because I'm going to change things up and do something and I have something unique to contribute. And you have to like slowly kind of rein yourself back in a little Mm -hmm. bit and be like, well, yeah, there are things I can contribute, but also there's a lot more perspectives and a lot more people who know a lot more than me. And like, yeah. you know, and like, and there's going to be areas in which I can contribute to, but I'm never going to know as much as somebody else because of their experience yeah. or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. And the, yeah, it's definitely the case. Certainly. Like, I think, I don't know whether it's uniquely, but something that I've definitely had to learn quite a lot about working in mental health is, yeah. Um, it's like your your role kind of expects you to be a professional and to know your stuff, but at the same time, your like social work training is like, you know that that's not really the most helpful necessarily like way to come about thinking about it. So you mm. like kind of need to know yeah, like you say I guess you yeah, need to know your need to know yourself and know your values really well so that you don't just kind of become just like kind of just like a person doing the tasks that are assigned to you yeah. as opposed to uniquely a social worker. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Was that your experience when you went to it or is it different for you? Um, with regards to what? With regards to being a psychologist within the context of mental health and were there like tensions in terms of maintaining your professional identity as opposed to the expectations of your role? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, um, yeah, I, I think we're we're all trained, I guess, in in different ways uh, around how we approach mental health, um, and um, I've found that balancing that within a multidisciplinary team um, has has required me to, I think, um, be a bit flexible and a bit creative at times, while also holding holding true to what it is my uh, you know, I as a psychologist uh, bring bring to that table. I think there's been plenty of times where I've had uh, discussions with with colleagues at work where I don't necessarily agree with the assessment that they've made, and that's entirely a result of my training and um, where that's where that's brought me. And so, being able to, I think, um, you know, work 
work within that that team while also um, keeping keeping true with mm. what I what I believe as a psychologist and what I what I know to be um, true as a psychologist is yeah been I guess a bit tricky at times but um, enjoyable yeah yes. <laughs> yes. yeah it's definitely not it's definitely very interesting like working that out and not just being in a context where everybody thinks the same thing. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and that's, yeah. but like, that's what I really enjoy about working in, in uh, at least uh, public mental health um, as, as opposed to private. I do enjoy doing private work, but I absolutely love working with other professions. Mm. I really, really do. The mm. amount of things that I have learned from, um, from say like yourself when you, when you were working with us, Aaron, um, and, and the other people on my team, uh, has been, has been amazing. And I think it's done nothing but enhance my practice. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I really enjoy working with, um, you know, a, a wide range of people, um, and disciplines because of the, um, the sort of lens with which they, they view things. It allows you to think a bit more openly about how, how am I as a psychologist, approaching this situation and and you know are there other ways that i could think about it mm. so, yeah keeps it lively it does yeah <laughs> yeah yeah awesome well how about we get to um the, we have had an incredible discussion and i've learned so much um but this is probably the most important part of the podcast for us anyway yeah. is uh the review of the beer, <laughs> Robin. Like, we, we don't we don't want to we don't want to say that we we haven't enjoyed you here. And, um, and but ultimately, all of uh, this is window dressing for what? Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, we basic basically we we thought an entire podcast on us just drinking beers probably wouldn't cut it. Uh, someone someone's probably already done that. Um, yeah, really. This year, this you're just the filler. <laughs> it's good to know. But Robin, Robin, do not be mistaken. You are one bloody high quality filler. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Great. Oh no. <laughs> this, is done. this is the kind of stuff you have to cut every time. Do- <laughs> I don't think you should cut that. Oh no. 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 <laughs> Oh, no, I, I am of course just joking. Um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, uh, Robin. Yeah. Um, so, how have you felt about um, fancy pants? Fancy pants beer. Yeah, How's I I've actually really enjoyed this this beer. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I have. I don't know what sort of a beer it is. It doesn't really. Does yeah. it say anywhere what sort it of? It's like almost nothing. <laughs> almost nothing. Yeah. Like it's like you drink it and it just kind of melts away in your mouth until yeah. you're like, mm, I don't taste anything in my mouth mm. anymore. You know what? I, I I think just just looking at this can now, I think the liquid inside the can is is probably accounts for ninety to ninety five percent of how I would review a, a, a beer. The other five to ten percent is is oh. what's on the can, Aaron. Oh, okay. And do you know what I really like about this can? I mean, I mentioned earlier there's, yeah. there's canned but not tamed. That's pretty good. But do you know, Aaron, there's what? one thing I'm noticing here that says, "Please drink responsibly." <laughs> and I like that. I really, I no really like that because here at Beer Supervision, we um we are, we encourage only the most responsible drinking of alcohol. Um, and so I think I think that's great. The they're going to get an extra point point two out of me for, for oh, my rating, wow. I think, or that thereabouts. <laughs> sure, uh, you can't have that. Probably. But okay, this, yeah. this is probably the first time I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mountain God benefiting from and, your just yeah. in observation. And then also brewed off site under the close watch of goats. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I like that. That is good. That's, that's I do good. appreciate that. Anyway, give uh, us your out of five, out of five rating. 
3.2. Okay. So lower than last week. That's very specific. Um, Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, look, I I enjoyed it. Um, And and it was was a nice beer. Um, I don't, like, I really like the Mountain Goat Steam Ale. Uh, that's that's probably one of my favourite beers, one of my top three beers. I actually really don't like the Mountain Goat Steam Ale. It's so, like, aggressive. Like, I drink it like, mm, yeah. I have to think about this and the, the, <laughs> the, the punch that it is in my face before I can move on with my life. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, well, not, it's not bad, it's just too much, um, you know? This is, this is the, the opposite problem, yeah, where so it's very little. <laughs> to, to all our guests, uh, thank you for tuning in to these episodes of Beer Supervision. It was an absolute... Pleasure doing the podcast <laughs> with you, but um, after that assessment of the Mountain Goat Steam Ale, um, I'm, I'm done. It's not a big fan. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Okay. I'm done. I can't, I can't, I can't work <laughs> under these conditions. Just get out of here. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's uh, look, I'll give it a. It's not. It's. It's. A, I would say it's probably a little above the average rating. Let's give it a a three. I'll give it a three. It was alright. It wasn't. It wasn't a bad beer. Just you know, I wouldn't wouldn't tell my friends about it. You know. No, you <laughs> tell all our listeners though. I'll, I'll tell. I'll, I'll broadcast to our listeners. <laughs> You know, drink this if you want to not taste the beer after you've drunk it. Because <laughs> just, it's just gone. <laughs> I don't know. Robin, how's the Brunswick water? The Brunswick water is pretty classy. Oh, yeah. oh really? Yeah. Okay. Smooth. Uh, can't can't taste or smell fluoride. Mm. That's mm. always a oh, big yeah. tick for me. Yeah, look. You yeah. don't want to be... Do you not be drinking toothpaste? That's not. That's you not do fun. not. I'd have you thought, do not. I'd have thought that the water here would have just been just as as out there and hipster as the sort of people who live here. But um, <laughs> it's not. It's no. not funky water. No, it's, no. it's not got that kind no, no. of. You know, it's like the corporations, man. That's that's no. who creates the water. We don't get control <laughs> of our water. It's the man. <laughs> that note <laughs> thank you so much robin for being on the podcast really appreciate it yes like, i definitely at least i definitely learned a lot and yeah i hope you guys listening did too um yeah um thank you so much everyone for listening um yeah we've really appreciated your feedback and that um if you haven't already definitely leave us a review on um apple Podcasts. that'd be really appreciated um mm. helps us a fair bit um yes, yeah it does it helps us a lot, and we really appreciate reading your reviews. So leave us a fun review, please. Yes, yeah, I think I think the fun of the better. The fun of the better. Yes, yes. Uh, no. <laughs> More marriage proposals for Jesse, please. <laughs> maybe, maybe not that fun. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. We will yes. see you in a couple of weeks. Very good. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Be a Supervision, the podcast where we talk about the joys of working in mental health over a cold brew. We record every two weeks, often with guests from the mental health field. If you could leave us a rating on iTunes, that would really help us out. Or share it with someone who might find it helpful. If you'd like to contact us with feedback or questions, or even just to say hi, definitely do at beersupervisionpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find Beer Supervision on Facebook and Twitter. Our opinions are our own, the beers we drink are chosen just by us, and we don't receive any sponsorships. We'll see you next time.